0: Están escuchando el viaje medianoche con el gran Guillermo. Este sinofilo lo va a llevar fantasmal por niñas y niñas.
1: the midnight ride with large william <clears throat> as you can tell i've had to say that quite a bit i'm losing my voice i now know how randy savage would feel uh <clears throat> after cutting a promo so uh today's episode i'm actually going to do the the rare thing of a hat trick a three pa- a three pack a three peat whatever you want to call it uh, a triple header um For the interest of time and editing and get these things out um, to you guys, the listeners. Um, We're going to be looking at three films. Uh, We're going to look at Blood on Satan's Claw, the amicus period set uh, horror film. We are going to be looking at uh, staying in that neck of the woods, going back a few years though and covering The Innocents. And then we're going to (laughs) jump back across the Atlantic and do something completely different with uh, Night Train to Terror. So, first up, Blood on Satan's Claw, uh, programmed by Better in the Dark's very own Tom DJ. He is uh, a longtime friend of the show. Um, He is uh, a gentleman who's been on our show uh, probably two, three, four times, maybe. Two or three times, at least, anyway. And he's quite a fan of uh, Amicus and Hammer and a lot of more traditional, uh, older horror fare. And it came up in passing, I don't like British horror, and he said, well, listen... He goes, have I got a film for you then? He goes, I'm willing to bet you will enjoy it. It's bonkers. Uh, I'll eat my shoe, basically, if you don't dig it. So I said, let's do it then. Um, And if that film is, as I said, Blood on Satan's Claw, 1971, uh, directed by Piers Haggard. Um, Piers Haggard uh, did Venom. I didn't realize that. Venom's a very, very fun film. Um... With Klaus Kinski, Oliver Reed, and Sterling Hayden. And Susan George. Uh, That film's bonkers, and I love that film. I can't recommend that film enough. Um, It's Kinski versus Reed with Sterling Hayden in the middle. I can't even imagine that set. What it would be like uh, working with those guys. Um, But yeah, Pierce Haggard, he is from England. Um, At the time he made this. Thirty-nine. 49, 49, he was only 32, 33 years old. Gosh, he's younger than I am now. Um, I don't know if he had adapted this from something prior. But um, let's uh, let's touch on it here. Amicus film. Uh, Amicus, as I've inadvertently ended up seeing some Amicus films, either through this show or just on my own. I'd seen Madhouse and uh, Tales from the Crypt, which you heard in my previous episode as well as a few others that I'm a fan of, I have to say I've kind of come to the realization that I like Amicus more than I like Hammer. I like the more contemporary stuff, even though this film isn't contemporary. Um, But I I just, uh, yeah, for some reason, I I can't quite put my foot on on what it is or my finger on it, but period set British horror just always seems very dry to me, and I hate to quit to keep banging that drum and to sound like a broken record and I get it, well, you know, you're always saying it and, you know, but uh, I'm happy to say this film um, is better than I would have anticipated. Uh, Now, full disclosure, uh, I was not in the greatest mood when I watched it. The reason I say that is I feel like mood can certainly color a a viewing of a film. I have limited time. I have two young kids, a wife, uh, you know, I'm Involved uh, with my kids' school and sixty-hour work weeks, and on and on it goes. So limited time, uh, which means limited sleep. Um, so sometimes when I'm watching films, I'm mentally I'm just not there. And you know, when you're crabby, when you're a crabby puss, uh, you maybe uh, need to drink some orange juice and perk up and, and get out of your mood. So. I was in a little bit of a bad mood, and now that I've had some time to step away from the film and think about it, um, it is a pretty effective piece. I mean, not that I was going to just slay it if I had it for quite a right afterwards, but having had the time to let it pass um, and think about it, I, I do quite like it uh, as we go on. Now, part of the problem is, you know, you get men in curly wigs and puffy shirts, and I can't really understand how the curly wig thing was ever a thing or ever a hot ticket for men. You know, puffy shirts, maybe I can get behind, but the wigs, I just, I don't see how that was a thing. Um, the film, I think, really captures the time period quite well. Um, there's a lot of, it feels like, there's a lot of natural kind of lit by candles, and that in itself, in and of itself, lends itself to the sort of campfire feel Um and it really takes you back, you know, I, I appreciate it, because it's not easy, I and mean, we see in front of the camera, but it's not easy to make things look natural um, without looking fucking dark, and you can't see anything in the frame, so I think they do a pretty good job of that. Um, now, one thing that didn't feel organic, though, as much as the lighting was really nice, and and, uh, natural feeling, was that there the, there's these bizarre Ironside theme-esque stings throughout the film, which, uh, they don't really jive with, uh, powdered wigs and, and puffy shirts, but uh, I'll, I'll take them, I guess. Um, one of the things I really dig on in the film, and we often talk about this with great horror, uh, or good horror, is subtext messages, social commentary, Um, and I really feel like this film was at a time, 1971, the world was changing very quickly around us, Um, a lot of political upheaval in America, Um, socially the world was changing, free love, you know, a lot of things were going on, a lot of conventions and norm, the norm was turning, and I think one of the things that this film does well is it looks at kind of the restlessness of youth, especially youth in a small village, and the fear of youth gone wild. Um, and at the point that you can't control youth all the time, um, you know, there's a disconnect between uh, the upstanding adults of the film and the the youth of the film. And there's an increasing restlessness and an increasing um, tension and, and a sort of adversarial quality to some of the relationships. And I think it really looks at that... um, throughout the film. And and it turns it up to 11, certainly... when you realize what's going on. Um, And I always like that sort of... secrets in a small village... thing you get in films. Because when you are in a small village... and you're cut off from things... it's not like I can call the FBI... or I can call the CIA... or bring the Mounties in. When you're in a village... You're fucked if the people in power, you know, their feelings and what they're involved in is contrary to what you're doing, what you believe in. So I really like that feel because then you really have to roll up your your puffy shirt sleeves and uh, and get to it. So yeah, you really have to roll up your puffy shirt sleeves and get to it. Um, Early on, there was a dude in this who reminded me of Kyle Troy from, I think it's his name, Kyle Troy from Ford Fairlane, the guy that's singing that song, I'm going to be the one who, I'm going to be the one who
2: loves you,
1: that uh, prompts Ford to get in the recording studio and show him how it's done. So that was kind of amusing. Um, One of the things I really like about the film, too, is, is what's not said. When there's this growing suspicion throughout the film about what's happening, who's good, who's not, who's up to this, who's up to that, can this person be trusted, this child, are they good, are they an unwitting accomplice, do they know what's happening? I, I like all that stuff in the film, and because there's some moments where we get these kind of smiles, uh, these kind of uh, evoke sort of this dread and whatnot from some of the younger female characters in the film, and... It really gets the wheels turning, uh, in terms of intent and so forth. Um, there's, uh, you know, M. Night Shyamalan did The Village, and say what you will at the film, I think the film shit the bed in the back half once the big reveal happens. I love the world that he'd set up in the first, maybe third of the film, with his village and so forth. Um, and at times they don't just kind of, is reminiscent of that, um... And uh, there's a great at the time you know the church playing a larger role in in each um, in each town certainly uh, in terms of imparting you know moral wisdom and what have you guidelines for living um, but there's a great seduction scene it just feels so insidious um, I really like that scene um, the way you see it unfold and the consequences of what happens and um, one of the things the film touches on too which, I want to say the film is called The Children also from England but maybe from two or three years ago I covered it on the Midnight Ride last year is the the trusting of youth and how innocence can be the greatest weapon of children and how vulnerable we are when we succumb to that innocence and that trusting of youth as lambs um it it really it really works well um and I like, too, that this looks at kids at an age when we rarely see them as evil. Usually they're very, very young, sort of demon spawn, six years old, or it's maybe kind of the youth gone wild thing, um, or they're getting stalked. But this is an age when that transition, as we talked about in the last episode, Company of Wolves, from child to young adult is interesting, very interesting. Uh, the film gets really whipped up into a frenzy near the back end. There's a really great feverish ceremony scene. It really gets whipped up. I mean, it's really bonkers, and a lot of stuff happens. Uh, and, and it was quite a good finale. And there's a great uh, slow-mo, did I put slow-mo jump down. I don't know what that really means. But, um, yeah, all in all, I dug this film. I, I, the more I think about it, the more I talk about it, the more I appreciate it. I'm glad Tom picked it. Um, It's one of the exceptions to the rule in terms of period horror from from that neck of the woods. I do love Witchfinder General as well, which I think is Tygon. Um, You know, one of the best performances Price puts in. uh, But that's for another episode, I guess, sometime. So with that, uh, I am going to take a short break. And we're going to come back and we're uh, going to keep it on this side of the pond. And we're going to be talking about a classic. I want to say it's from 62, The Innocents. We'll be right back
3: the of your love, like the warmth from the sun, and this will be all you to the long time to come. Don't let go of my hand now, darkness has gone. This will be. I won't forget
0: the way you helped me up when I was done, and I won't forget the way you
3: said, darling I love you, you gave me faith to go on, oh, now we're there, and we've only just begun, this will be our year, it took a long time to come. year took a long time to come You don't have to worry all your worried days are gone And this will be our year took a long time to come And I won't forget the way you helped me up when I was down And I won't forget the way you said Darling, I love you You gave me faith to go on Now we're there and we've only just begun this will be our year. Took a long time to come, and this will be our year. Took a long time to.
1: Hey gang, what's up? We're back and we are going to be talking about 1961, not 1962, 1961's The Innocents, directed by Jack Clayton, written by Henry James, of course, and the um, uh, screenplay written by William Archibald and Truman Capote. Interesting. I did not know that uh, Mr. Capote did the screenplay for this. Uh, this is a very famous <clears throat> horror film, as it were, ghost story. Um, however you want to cut it. Uh, Criterion has put this out. It's been remade. There's been a prequel, which I ironically covered last year on the uh, Midnight Ride. Um, The Nightcomers with um, Marlon Brando, which is just a fantastic piece of uh, film. that doesn't get a lot of love, but I really dug it, and it precedes the events that take place in The Innocents. Um, I would highly recommend everyone check it out. Um, I often wonder about... Horror film and what sort of really well-made, classy, respectable horror film is, and I try to think of as many as I can. And this film falls into that realm. Um, it's very much a classic uh, in terms of its approach and in terms of the content, really, and and what it is. And I just see um, that this will be airing on TCM on Thursday, October the twenty-third at eight p.m. So set your PVRs. Um, this uh, I want to see what else Clayton has done because off the top of my head uh, I can't say that I'm all that certain as to what he would have been involved with so he made a couple things he made The Great Gatsby um, and he also made something wicked This Way Comes I believe let's see here those are the two that I know I made mean, The Pumpkin Eater as well which uh, I'm familiar with the name but not, uh, which a Harold Pinter screenplay, interesting, Uh, which, uh, famous, got a solid cast top to bottom, but I can't see, he didn't do a whole lot, ten films, and uh, other than that, that was it, Um, again, only 74 years old, Uh, Berkshire Lad, Um, yeah, so this film, in terms of when it was in his career, was, uh, where did it come in the body, in terms of his body of work? Uh, he, it was the, first, the second film he had done. He'd done a couple shorts, then he did Room at the Top, and then this um, with Simone. Oh, interesting. Simone Sr. A. Lawrence Harvey and Heather Sears. So it looks like he worked with a lot of people uh, on both sides of the pond, interestingly. Um, so yeah, anyway, as I was saying, when I think about classy, technically competent horror films, um, this one will come to mind now. Uh, I'm glad that... Uh, I don't know if I'd said who picked it, but Alyssa, the golden-voiced dame uh, behind our show, picked this film, and she's got impeccable taste. Um, if I had said that, then I'm repeating myself, so as I'm known to do. Um, and I don't think I'd mention this. I know, maybe I had, but this is... Um, and I had mentioned, yeah, you know what, I had mentioned that it was uh, <clears throat> written by Henry James, of course, The Turn of the Screw, uh, 1898, so, which is a much celebrated piece of uh, literature. Um, the film opens up and we see that, I haven't even synopsized this, so I guess I should probably do that. Uh, In Victorian England, the uncle of orphan niece Flora and nephew Miles hire Miss Giddens as governess to raise the children at his estate with total independence and authority. Soon after her arrival, Miss Giddens comes to believe the spirits of the former governess and valet are possessing the children. Miss Giddens decides to help the children to face and exercise the spirits. Um, Yeah, so that uh, probably gives away... Well, it gives away some assumptions, I guess, certainly... That are made in the film, but whether it gives away the the film itself, I'll leave it all to you to see. So one of the things the film does really well is it works with a small set, and as I just spoke about in the um, uh, Blood on Satan's Claw review, is when films are confined to a small space, it is smart filmmaking because it keeps your budget in check, and it also gives us a sense of claustrophobia, and... Uh, It turns up the anxiety because there's really nowhere to run and nowhere to hide. And the film almost all takes place at this estate where um, Miss Giddens, Deborah Kerr, uh, is uh, now going to be in charge of the kids. Um, So one of the good things that the film does, too, in terms of setting the film up – and, you know, because you, inevitably you ask yourself, well, why wouldn't they, why wouldn't she tell anyone, why wouldn't she do anything? But she's given this job on the condition that, uh, and I'm quoting the uncle here, you must never, never trouble me. I'm putting you in charge here. You're to run the house as you see fit. I don't want to be involved. You take care of it. Uh, he's, I guess, in London. Um, so, you know, she's left to deal with it. And we see that she's a woman that loves children a great deal and... Uh, is passionate, so she's not going to be someone that the first sign of a problem. She's going to just buzz off and and sort of leave the children to their own devices. Um, The house itself that the film takes place in and the grounds are just absolutely beautiful. I mean, they're really, really, really beautiful, and they make great use of them. I don't know, and I'm sure I could find out in terms of the estate and what have you and um, – I know it was filmed, let me just take a quick gander here, see if I see it, uh, East Sussex, Sheffield Park Station, Shepperton Studios, and a lot of sussex locations, so, yeah, um, great little, uh, not little, a sprawling kind of compound, um, uh, quite beautiful, certainly, Um one of the things, as I, I hinted at with, with uh, the film, is how technically refined it is, is how great the performance are, performances are in this film. Um, you only have four or five people really in the film. You have Miss Giddens, Deborah Kerr. Um, you have Miles and Flora, played by Martin Stevens and Pamela Franklin. And then Mrs. Gross. Uh, and then to a smaller degree, Michael as The Uncle and and a few other uh, people that aren't... Uh, they, they kind of pop in and out, so to say. Um... Kerr is fantastic. Uh, Mrs. Gross, who's like the, I guess, the the maid, um, she's a great character in this film because what she does is, she's been at the house for a long time, so any concerns that um, are had, she she's kind of quick to dissuade Miss Giddens from getting too excited or from looking into things too much and... Uh, not from a a place of malice, but I think if she's content to just let things be the way they are at the home and she's content with the lot she's got. You can tell she's very much kind of a salt of the earth woman who's very content to be in this position she's in and for all her days. Um, uh, You know, so it isn't just Kerr with the children, it has another voice of reason, which uh, far more often not, that voice is discouraging her from sort of fantastical thoughts. Much like we had talked about uh, in the previous episode, and as we talk about a lot, with, as far as being a dramatic device, unreliable narration—how much of it is a mental, uh, a mental state? How much of it is real? Uh, is what this person theorizing in their head correct, or are they cooking it up? Uh, you know, it just it works quite well in this film too, because we start to see Miss Giddens' character fray at the edges, and you, she becomes unsure what she's seeing, and and the frequency increases, and. Is it a snowball effect? Is it getting exponentially more so because of her diminished or her decreased uh, capacity for logic because she's there? Or you know, is this place legitimately haunted to some degree? Um, but yeah, so Miss Gross, Meg Jenkins is great. Kerr as we already said is great. But the two children, uh, Martin Stevens and Pamela Franklin, as Miles and Flora, I mean, they're really exceptional. Child performances are huff a lot of times they're shit um but both kids are really great and there's nuance with these kids and their performances because there's things they have to do in the film to l- allude to some things and to kind of lead you a little bit uh, to get the ball the wheel the gerbil running in the wheel so to speak and uh they do a really good job with that stuff really good job um and I like too that the patient, the patience of the film. I feel like Clayton is very patient to dole things out and to piece off information to us and events that are happening and things. It's not all front heavy or bonkers in the middle, and then it's just uh, you know drags ass. He's very patient, a very confident and assured uh, direction from him. You know, to say we're just going to piece this stuff out bit by bit until it kind of builds up towards the back end of the film and. It works quite well. Um, and the great thing, too, is, you know, we're constantly being reassured. And, and really, we are, for all intents and purposes, we are Miss Giddens. We're the outsider who's observing what's going on here and wondering if what we're seeing is a supernatural or not. But we're constantly reassured by Mrs. Gross that, you know, how silly this assumption is. And they're just being children. They're just children. And I think, again, this this touches on that thing of... Uh, Miss Giddens' character starts to wonder if, if she's just, or, or if Miss Gross is telling lies about children, the lies we tell ourselves about children and their innocence, um, and their motivations, which again, I just talked about with Blood on Satan's Claw, it seems to be a recurring theme. (coughs) Um, done a lot of talking, man, really parched here. Um... There's some really... The camera work for the film is really great, too. There's some great kind of background, foreground shots where some of be in the extreme foreground and some, then something else is in the extreme background and some kind of uh, deep focus stuff that works quite well. So the film's really well shot. Um, and there's a really great shot of this beetle coming out of a cherub statue's mouth, which I really liked, and I liked what they were conveying with that and this innocence being rotten on the inside. Um... I really like that. And just really the the shadows are fantastic, the sense of isolation, of strangers, lines that are seemingly innocent, the way they're uttered, we think, well, what did they mean by that? And it just keeps you off balance throughout the film and quite effectively, and the mistrust that is building now. Um, and there's another film that uses sound to great, you know, to... Uses it quite effectively to uh, to a great extent. Um, The uh, the candlelight again is fantastic. Shadows, you know, what we don't see, um, really great. Um, Now I have to say, for the time, there's a theory or a reveal about what's happening in the film. For the time, it's especially in light of when it was written. I mean, it's it's pretty lurid, kind of sordid, and very heady for its time. But see, nothing's ever spelled out; it's implied, and we could debate the reality of what's happening uh, about it, which is you know sign of a good piece of uh, literature and film. But I just I think the way I interpreted it, which you know took it took Miss Giddens' theory at face value, is it is very lurid and sordid and kind of heady for for its time. Um, And yeah, I already talked about the film itself and the setting, but there's a beautiful greenhouse or solarium that's used towards the back end of the film. And it's really... I mean, it really looks nice. Um, So, yeah. uh, That's all my notes. This one's definitely a treat, and it's a classy treat at that. So if you're looking for something different when you can watch with Mom that's not going to be like Slumber Party Massacre 2, um, this one is the one. It's a good one, and uh, that brings... Uh, the end of this review to uh, sorry I'm looking at some caramelized onion hummus and I'm getting distracted this brings us to the end of this review we're going to hop on a plane uh, and into a time machine about 20-25 years in the future Um, we're going to get a plane and then we're going to get off the plane and get on a train that is the night train to terror we'll be right back Okay, we're back. I've just gotten off of the train and plane, and now we're about to get on the Night Train to Terror. 1985. Our good friend, uh, classy dame, trashy dame, uh, one-third of the trashy trio. Uh, She's one hell of a drummer, one great friend, uh, and a woman with impeccable taste in most things in life, if not all things. Uh, Wendy, our good friend, has programmed um, an episode for us where we are going to be talking about *Night Train to Terror*, as we discussed. So, this is a bonkers film. I've used—I seem to like using the word "bonkers," but it's because I love things that are bonkers. Um, so, this uh, this film has a pretty notorious. Um, Pretty, it's pretty notorious because essentially what it was was that they did the Godfrey Hope method of filmmaking where they took <clears throat> three films, not just two, three films and uh, they edited them together to make um, an anthology of sorts. Um, they book edited it with some footage they'd shot with Lucifer and God. Uh, on the train, and some amazing music video stuff. And, uh, uh, yeah, uh, the good people over at Vinegar Syndrome uh, have done great work, and they put it out on uh, Blu-ray. So, um, what's cool is they put out the full-length version of uh, Greta, which is the Death Wish Club, which uh, is one of the films that's cut down to about 15 or 20 minutes um, in the film. So, uh, yeah, um, God and Satan are on a train discussing the fate of three individuals. The stories of the people in question are told in a trio of very strange vignettes. One involves an insane asylum with some very interesting treatment plans. Another involves a death club. The final story shows us the adventures of a server of Satan. Yeah, that kind of summarizes it. Um, I thought I, you know, I wasn't sure if I'd seen this one or not. I, In fact, when Wendy had mentioned to me showing me to cover it, I thought she had said, or I was mixing it up with uh, Terror Express, which is a really sleazy Last House on the Left rip uh, from Italy, which I quite like. I mean, it's really sleazy. It's written by George Eastman, so I should tell you something. But uh, yeah, so uh, this cover had been around and pretty notorious. Uh, I finally had a chance to see it, and I'm glad I did. It's going to be one that I'm going to be buying in the near future. I'm very curious to see this one of these full-length films, the one Greta, the Death Club or whatever it was. So, it's got this, opens with this really intense title card, and it's fantastic. Um, A lot of fog, a lot of blue lights, and a lot of hot licks. I mean, a lot of hot licks. There's a fucking guitarist going wild. This thing opens up, and it is just an amazing party. Like, the train is already... Just rumbling along at full—it's like a—it's like a bullet train, man. This thing is just moving already, and uh, a lot of times, you know, I use VLC player to watch films on my computer and so forth. Some films are like just like screen cap gold, and the opening for this film is just screen cap gold. It's—it's it's unbelievable. There's so many incredible sartorial choices made, um, crushed velvet for wallpaper. It's really outstanding. It kind of reminds me, in some ways, it's not as good as this, but it kind of reminds me of The Visitor in some ways, with you know the forces of evil and good and just how insane it is. And it really feels like it's an Italian film in some ways. But it's not. It's all American, um, which is peculiar, especially with that music video opening, man. Like this party that's happening on the train just feels like... Uh, it just feels like it was shot in like, you know, like um, Murder Rock. It should have been in Murder Rock, the the uh, Umberto Lenzi film. It's just, it's really out there, man. Um, so we see Mr. Satan and we see the, uh, what's it called? I can't think of what the, uh, the gentleman who works on the train is called, the uh, steam... What is he called? Oh, fuck, I'm horrible. Uh, I don't know what he's called. We'll call him the attendant on the train. Um, he approaches Mr. Satan, and we find out that Mr. Satan fucking loves amulets outside of his dress shirt. So we know he's very GDTMC. Um, and uh, Satan also loves cocaine, clearly. And uh, they're him and God are talking. They got this like halogen lit table, and they're. Having a conversation, a very civil conversation, I should say. Very civil, indeed. And um, the film opens up, and we get some of the most reckless driving in the history of cinema. Now, Cataclysm is the name of the original film that uh, we see footage from. I think, if memory serves, Cataclysm is the most kind of star power heavy um, of all of the films that we... uh, we see, let me see here. I'm trying to see if this was actually, re- know, it looks like it has gotten a release. Again, I want to track down each, of the two films that have been completed and see them in their entirety. It stars, uh, it's got uh, three, oh wow, I thought John Philip Law was in this one. Did I mix him up with someone else? I must have mixed up Cameron Mitchell with John Philip Law. That's strange, man. I really could have thought that was John Philip of Law. Um, oh no, no, he shows up somewhere else. You know what? It's going to sound like I'm I'm especially stupid when I talk about this film, but it is hard. It's hard to follow, man. Things jump around. They took, let's just assume ninety minutes per film. They took uh, two hundred and seventy, you know, two hundred and seventy minutes worth of film added in about you know 20 minutes of their own footage let's say so under 200 minutes or excuse me 300 minutes of film and they shaved it down to 98 minutes so things get a bit uh difficult to follow at times but um richard mall shows up uh who i always felt like he could have played a heavy more in films i mean he was great as the the gentle giant on night court but i feel like he had presence and could have done more kind of heavy stuff in the films like uh like an American, less handsome George Eastman or something, and John Philip Law. Speaking of uh, George Eastman, uh, John Philip Law is in this uh, this portion uh, of the film, and uh, as is Cameron Mitchell, as I'd said, and the, it opens up, and there's just so many so many breasts on display. Uh, it's uh, it's quite uh, quite delicious, and really, I mean, the film. Kind of is after my own heart. It feels like an '80s Italo film mixed with EC comics, um, and it's very sleazy. As I've said, I just can't believe how much bondage and rape there is from the get-go in this film. And uh, the film itself, I got to say, Vincent does a really good job with the restoration. All things considered. A lot of the films they work with don't have the source material that uh, Criterion or or other uh, labels have access to. So they do a really good job uh, cleaning these films up. And the film opens up, there's lots of blood. I mean, the film looks good. It's nasty. It's feverish. And there's this uh, female doctor in this one. Um, I I don't even know who she is. Uh, But... uh, Oh man, there's a guy named Oh Clement von Frankenstein shows up in this. Who I think we've mentioned on our show before, but uh, the the doctor in this, um, there's the, the night train segment. Which ca- the cast for the night train segment is insane. There's like twenty people. Um, man, and Richard Malt, out of the confusion, shows up in two different uh, segments in the film. Doctor Fargo. That must be her. Sharon Ratcliffe. Sharon Ratcliffe. Uh, unfortunate name that. Um, she is a doctor, and she looks like the sister of um, Henry Silva. So there's that. Um, and we get to see Richard Mall and Philip John Philip Law in an ECW Hardcore match, which is pretty great. And uh, a lot of that, that portion takes place in a hospital, and that's a great setting, of course, for a film. And um, it kind of toggles between them and you know the God and Devil talk, and God has a really nicely groomed, voluminous beard, um, and lots of sexy saxophone. Certainly, you know, I'm kind of re- wheeling all around here, much like in the spirit of the film. But I have to wonder what compelled them to put this incredible dance and music number in the film. It just makes no sense, no sense. They could have had a camera kind of uh, crawl through the train and see people doing different things, and then just go to the um, the God and Satan kind of booth where they're talking, or the the car and uh, like the car within the train. And I I don't know what inspired them. I'm glad someone was inspired to have this music video, this high energy Italian music uh, video number. but uh, I can't understand how anyone thought it would feel organic. But that's uh, the the wonders and the uh, the pleasure in film of this kind. Um, lots of white satin, lots of white satin in the film, and um, there's this Tasmanian, Tasmanian or Tanzanian insect that shows up, and it feels like a, you know, sort of like a low rent Harryhausen effect. Um, and this thing can attack, man. Like, we get exploding heads. Um, and then it cuts to a bunch of people wearing Burger King crowns at school desks. And uh, this is where we get that Death Club, uh, Death Wish Club sequence, which uh, which I have to say, you know, all of these uh, segments, if if to feature, like, I mean, it could be a greatest hits package, but... Uh, you know, they all seem like they're fucking going to be amazing when I see them. Um, so I, I got to see this one. I feel like this one, uh, feels the most, uh, the most appealing to me. Um, so i am wearing these Burger King crowns and, and, uh, something happens and it's so insane. It's like, if you've seen the stuff and, um, you get the was it chocolate chip Charlie? Is that his name? I think. Um, I I always say it, but my memory is impeccable. It's uh, it's so good. I have the memory of it is chocolate chip Charlie. Um, yeah, uh, who of course played by a former SNL cast member uh, Garrett Morris. Um, but I feel like there's like a really chocolate chip Charlie esque melty death in this. Uh, which is pretty insane and uh, and then a biker net a biker gang shows up and we get net confoundment and a fucking wrecking ball a lot of the films I'm kind of surprised that they were they were just never released because at a time when there was such a flood or a glut in the marketplace um, you know you really would have felt that f- there would have been a market for some of these films like The John Philip Law, I mean, he was marketable, Richard That someone would have bought it in 86 or 88 and dropped it, you could have done that, like the Miramax thing of releasing it, capitalizing on Night Court's uh, fame, and Philip Law has an audience, um, and then the Death Dream one, or whatever it was, Death Wish Club, that seems to be the kind of film that that would play great in a VHS crowd, um... Now we get a lot of monsters again. I can't even remember what these notes mean necessarily, but we get some insane monsters and splatter. And then I underline they fucking go for it. So yeah, uh, that's that's good. I'm glad I'm glad they went for it. Um, I can't remember everything like I said about the film, but uh, there are a lot of wonderful things that happen. Um, there's a disco party at a church, which is always fantastic, and. Uh, Someone has, uh, all the waiters are wearing these powder blue turtlenecks with navy blue satin bombers, I think. Um, the floors open up. I mean, we get earthquakes. Um, we get surger- more surgery going on in the film. It's uh, They don't skimp on anything, man. Like, they fucking go for it. And kudos to the people that smashed this film together because... They take a lot of great material and just rush it into the the uh, the film, and it it I think works quite well as far as listen. There are people going to hate this film, but uh, the people that appreciate sort of um, Silent Night Deadly Night two esque or pieces, you know, if you appreciate that kind of film, I think this will be right up your alley. I hate the cover that uh, seems to be the DVD cover. Um, it's, it's awful. It's so kind of early 90s CGI with this train with a devil head and horns. Um, it's, yeah, it's really unfortunate. What's funny is, uh, Jay Schlossberg Cohen, who, um, maybe that's not who I was looking for. Let me see this here. Um... Oh, it says the top, it's fantastic. It says, from Academy Award winner Philip Jordan, or Jordan. So, Philip Jordan wrote the screenplay for this. And, oh man, he was involved in a lot of amazing stuff Battle of the Ball, Jel Sid, Johnny Guitar, um, wow, The Bravados. I could go on and on. Um, it's insane to think that he ended up doing this really insane, he would have been about 70 years old, wow, um, because it's 85, so yeah, it's great that they, they say it's it's from him, but I guess they got to put a little shine on that turd, um, there's a fucking train, I, I didn't even want to tell you, but I will tell you because it's not going to deter from the enjoyment, there's a train explosion. a lot of hot licks again, a lot of sexy sacks again, I'm going to close this episode with a piece of music from this film. And I challenge you to not find the nearest train. Get on it and start dancing. This one is a treat in every sense of the word. You can put this on at a party, leave for half an hour, come back. It won't make any more sense uh, if you do that versus sit down on the couch and watch it. It's a fun film. It's insane. It's got lots of weird shit happening. It's a buy for me, frankly. If you like ridiculous stuff, sleazy stuff, fun, rompy, nonsensical stuff, this is up your alley. And, uh, I guess with that, um, there's not much more to say, um, because I'm going to close this film with a beautiful, or this episode with a beautiful piece of music that will, um, illuminate your soul. So, I will say, adios.
0: What is this? Some call it the Heavenly Express. Others, Satan's cannonball. But we guarantee to deliver every passenger to his right destination. Like, I really wish
2: our bus hadn't broken down, you know?
0: No way. I think this train is cool.
2: From the top! sorting through the news. Mama's at the shopping mall buying new shoes. Everybody's